Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the first presidential debate is over, but not the determined battle to win the Latino vote. Or is it the Hispanic vote or the Latinx vote, the ethnic identification used by most media? Our Latinx roundtable guests weigh in on the identity label debate. Plus, from the land of the cranes to my poppy rides a motorcycle, Latino representation in children's books is expanding because of the focused efforts of several artists and writers groups. Later in the show, a daughter reckons with her mother's violent death at the hands of her former stepfather in a new memoir. My mother, in in leaving, did the thing that people always say about victims of domestic violence. Why didn't they just leave? Well, she did. And so when we say to women who, who were not situated in the way that my mother was, you can get away. How can you say to someone, if my mother can't get away, that they can? Memorial Drive is Natasha Trethaway's gut-wrenching story of her grappling with the moment and the memory of her mother's death. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Our discussion is also the kickoff conversation for the Boston Book Festival 2020. But first, joining me remotely to discuss the latest Latinx news, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And also with me, Adriana Maistas, a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Hello, Adriana. Hi, Callie. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. Before the presidential debate happened, the latest Univision news poll of Latino registered voters came out. Now, I mentioned the debate and this poll together because as people went into the debate, it looks pretty much like people are decided, that folks are really not wavering about where they stand. In the poll of Latino registered voters, these are just registered voters, Biden-Harris were 66 percent and Trump-Pence were 24 percent. So whether or not somebody got moved as a result of what happened on the Tuesday debate is um, something to discuss, perhaps. But lots of other polls seem to indicate that people are kind of fixed in where they are. I first wanted to get your response to the results of the poll and weigh in on and whether or not you thought this had any meaning for the constituency that we're talking about here. Julio? Yeah, I mean, the big, big takeaway from all the polling that's happening is that I don't think Biden-Harris has as large of a spread over Trump-Pence as, say, Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine had in 2016. And it has a lot to do with the fact that the Trump campaign knows the voters that it needs to get in the Latino community. And they've been working at it really hard. So that 
Latino voter is more affluent. I think you're looking at South Florida. It focuses more on the Cuban Venezuelan vote. Um, it's a little bit whiter. <laughs> it's second, third generation. The Trump campaign knows they know who they have to get. And so if you look at some of their ads in Spanish or they you know they they're very clear on the fact that Biden Harris represents the left and they're using sort of this imagery that comes out of Latin American politics that really resonates with the right of the Latino community in the United States. Okay. Adriana, what do you say? And I'm also noting a, another piece uh, looking at uh, more closely at who are President Trump's supporters. Um, and they are the folks as described by Julio. And I'm wondering if you thought the president's deliberate use of the word socialism many times in the debate was resonating with that that group. Yeah, I I think it is because he's like like Julio said, the Republicans know that they won't get a majority of you know what we call the Latino vote, but they do know where they can go to harvest like likely supporters, and it tends to be in a certain segment of like the Cuban exile community, some of the Venezuelans. So you know, so what he's doing makes sense, and I also think too, I just want to note that. You know, Trump goes to Florida a lot. So I mm. think he kind of. Well, that's true. He lives there. Yeah, he that's lives right. there. You're right. Yeah, yeah, he lives there. Yeah. So I think that people on his team, he has some people on his team from Florida who kind of know where to go, where to mine for those votes. And I, right. and, and I think they're being very strategic about it. Um, and they also are very, they're, they're very careful in how they, how they approach that because they know, I mean, like it kind of doesn't make sense to go, you know, using that kind of rhetoric, the anti-socialism and stuff, that's not going to work with like Mexican American and Central American voters out West. Like, you know, we, the, the people out here would probably be like, we don't care about that. That doesn't, <laughs> you know, tell us what you're going to do to help us get out of the situation we're in now. Like we're not going to have a debate about socialism or communism. Whereas I think, people in Florida, if you've experienced a Castro or an authoritarian regime, I think a lot of them feel that nothing, you know, even what Trump is doing is not as bad as what they've experienced. So I think there's an element of that. Mm. Well, that's a that's a very important point, actually, uh, that, that I don't think a lot of people are thinking about pollsters and others who are, are making sweeping kind of uh, statements about it. I will just other note this other piece uh, from Latino Rebels. Um, Julio, about Trump's, President Trump's past words about Cuban Americans, which is interesting. So that seems to have not stuck. So just so people understand, you know, back when he was talking about Mexico sending rapists, he also uh, made statements that Fidel Castro had sent over people who were hardcore criminals. Those would be Cubans. So he kind of put them in the... In, and Afro-Cuban. And I think it's based yeah. on racial... So one of the things that's important about that piece by Alexander Stevens, and it's an opinion piece, but it's very interesting because recently the president had the veterans of the Bay of Pigs at the White House. If you look at the people that showed up, it was older white Cuban men. There's no, I mean, there wasn't a black Cuban face in the audience. There weren't even Cuban women. So I think even within the Cuban community, 
there is, you know, the issue of anti-blackness is very clear. And that's why I kind of go back to my previous point is that the support for Trump, especially in those communities, is wider, is older, and it's male. Mm. And it's changing because, the, the you know, the, the sons and daughters of those generations are kind of seeing it as sort of, you know, this the Cuban exile narrative seems to be a little bit old. So you do see some pockets of Democratic support in, in, in the Cuban community. But the reality is, this is all about race and identity. And Trump yeah. is okay. using the same dog whistles, whether it's here or whether it's white supremacists. It's all it's all connected. Got it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with our Latinx roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Latino politics journalist Adriana Maestas. Now, let me just put a button on this whole Latino vote conversation, if I may, uh, in this way. The fact that, as you've pointed out, Julio, Joe Biden isn't doing as well as Hillary Clinton, and your point is that Hillary Clinton lost in the uh, Latino community, uh, even though there is strong support, some say um, has to do with just sort of a missing the message, missing the fact that, like any other group of Americans, there's more than one issue for this group of people, and that there seems to, in some ways, the Democrats and, and maybe uh, Joe Biden are kind of stuck on just the immigration and haven't moved on. And I was uh, struck with Ali Nurani, who is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. He was speaking on our program, Boston Public Radio, this past week. And he was talking about how uh, Hispanic voters have changed over the years and Democrats need to keep up. Here he is. I think Democrats, they're not changing their message fast enough. Um, in fact, there was some research that was released a couple days ago that we just uh, circulated this morning from Pew that found that as Hispanics kind of go through generations of being here in the U.S., they, you know, the way I would put it, they lose the hyphen, um, meaning that they don't see themselves as Mexican-American or, or uh, they see themselves as American. Um, and that, I, you know, that, that leads to a, a different way of kind of thinking about your identity as as a, as, a, as a U.S. citizen, who you are, where you came from, but more importantly, what you aspire to become. So um, I'd like both of you all just to weigh in on what he said. I, I think he's right in a way. Um, you know, people are encouraged to assimilate. Um, this is a group that sort of can more easily enter whiteness, so to speak. So, you know, some of these issues that people might assume would be appealing like immigration become less so. I, I do think that people like whether they identify as Latino, that might lessen over time in subsequent generations. So, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's really real. And I do think too that the Democratic Party has not always been very smart about how they target this group. So my whole thing is like whenever they talk about, oh, you know, we're going to make an appeal to Latino voters, it's always like, well, which Latino voters are you talking about? Because how you approach them in different regions and, in, you know, in different parts of this country matters. So, you know, for instance, you would not want to have a very obviously Mexican or Mexican-American message in a Cuban enclave in Florida, 
and and there are operatives who get this and like to their credit you know like people like chuck rocha has been very intentional i mean there are some others um who who really you know they drill down and they're like you you do have to catch up and really tailor your message to where you're going so i do think he's making um a very good point there and that you know the democrats they do need to catch up and they do need to make sure that their message is relevant and also deliver something so it's not just an anti-Trump sort of thing. You know, you have to do more than just be against Trump. So if I'm not mistaken, Chuck Rocha is the guy that advised Bernie Sanders. Yeah, he's a senior advisor. And uh, is highly regarded. And this is he was the driving force by why Bernie Sanders got uh, young Latino voters very excited about him. And the other reason, um, Julio, as you pointed out, uh, is Vanessa Cardenas. I'm just looking at her last yeah, name here. Cardenas, and yeah. and uh, in uh, Latino Rebels wrote was climate change. Like the, yeah. it, the and her piece is talking about if you're going to wake up the sleeping giant, which is what we have been referring to Latino voters or the block of Latino voters, even as Adriana told us there is no block. Um, it starts with climate change. This is an opinion piece, but I thought about that during the presidential debate. So before you weigh in, here's President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden at this past week's first presidential debate speaking on climate change. Crystal clean water and air. I want beautiful, clean air. We have now the lowest carbon. If you look at our numbers right now, we are doing phenomenally. I believe that we have to do everything we can to have immaculate air, immaculate water. We can create hard, hard, good jobs by making sure the environment is clean and we all are in better shape. We spend billions of dollars now billions of dollars on floods, hurricanes, rising seas. We're in real trouble. So both of them took their stance on climate change. I mean, it was one of the issues, the real issues that got spoken about. There was a lot of shouting around it, but still um, Mm -hmm. it was articulated. Did that get through? Did people hear that from either of them? I don't know if they I don't know if they heard anything um, Mm. on Tuesday. So. Yeah, but you no, know, but I do think there's a couple of things here. You know, there was a recent poll by Telemundo of younger Latino voters who 30% of them identify as independent. 30%. That's a pretty significant number. And so I, I'm mm. with Adriana. That's a in, high number. In the sense of how Democrats have missed that opportunity, because I do think they've been caught into the sort of this establishment respectability politics that's being challenged on all levels right now, not only with Latino voters, but I think with all uh, voters who identify as democratic. Although I will say 70%, according to this last poll, 70% of younger voters, 18 to 29, said they're going with Biden-Harris. So who knows? As for climate change, yes. I really think Democrats have a humongous opportunity to, to, to lead with that. I think when you look at Latino communities in this country, they understand the issues of climate change. I mean, you go out to, to Southern California, you know, places where climate change has, has, has had a negative impact. It's because of economics and displacement. And I don't think you do they You know, I don't think Democrats are doing a good enough job connecting those dots as well. And I think this issue of climate change is important. I think Democrats are, are being a little bit nervy about it. And they're missing out, on, I think, on what what could potentially help them, at least with younger Latino voters and, and in Latino voters in general. Because if you look at the that piece that Vanessa did write, it it, it it's a pretty significant 
number, I think it's in the 60 or 70 percent range where climate, you know, having an aggressive climate change policy and leading with that could excite voters. And I should point out that uh, that uh, across the board, wherever you are ideologically, young people, that includes conservative young people, right. have already said this is an issue for them. So it, it's uh, it's to be mined uh, for folks who are paying attention. So, Adriana, I'm switching uh, topics now because here we are again. I've had this discussion once on this show. Um, I think, Julio, you might have been a part of it about uh, ethnic labeling, ethnic identity labeling. Ah, ah, uh, yes. Now, as I recall, go. Um, <laughs> Julio, you're like, whatever. It's young people. <laughs> they want to do that. Whatever. Adriana, you got a different take on this. It's like, get rid of this Latinx. It doesn't mean anything. Um, I want to say, not in defense of why we use it here, but why we used it. I had another name, but a young person who was non-binary, by the way, who worked here for us as an intern, was very passionate about are changing and using this identity label Latinx after the the massacre in Florida at the, the club, place. at the nightclub. And he said, that, you know, that these people were not getting recognized as Latinx and or uh, in the LGBTQ community. And he thought it was very important not to have a sort of gender identity label, but speak to an ethnic heritage. On your on the other hand, Adriana, you just say this is just nonsense. So talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So what I have found lately, and what we've always known this, is that people who fall under the, these labels, you know, they tend to prefer a more specific label. So like Cubans would prefer Cubans. I mean, there are some people who are like, you know, um, they might be Black Colombians and they want to be called Black Colombian or they want to be Black called Black Puerto Rican. They want, you know, to assert whatever it is, like their Blackness or, or you know, their um, more specific identity. So I just um, have been like kind of paying closer attention to this about how like people are assimilated into the Latino community or the Latinx community. Now, whether somebody wants to throw an X on the end of something, for me personally, I don't care. That's not really the issue. I just think that we have to look at these constructs like you know the construct of latino or latinx or hispanic and how they're projected and i know like i had a piece that came out sort of right in the beginning of hispanic heritage month which we're in the middle of right now that questions that and there have been subsequent pieces so i'm not the only one there's a lot of people who do this and and including some people who are black who say you know i just reject the concept of Latino or Latinx because I've never felt included in it. If, if I can interrupt you one point, just to say that uh, this is an ongoing conversation. We, we've, we've, we've had it a number of times here and it will continue to go on. But it kicked off again, um, not just because of Hispanic Heritage Month, which is now, as you've said, but also uh, in August, Pew uh, released a survey and said that less than a quarter, 23 percent of those who identify as Hispanic or Latino have even heard of the term Latinx. So and a lot of other people don't like it. But go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and and I think that kind of, you know, that the the X at the end of things, it did come about organically from those communities. I mean, I've been told that in Latin America, people had been using the X for like maybe about 20 years within certain groups. And it's just that here right now it's starting to gain traction 
And there's a lot of people who criticize it because they think the pronunciation is clunky. But for me personally, I kind of, you know, whether somebody wants to throw an X on the end of Latinx or um, Chicanx or Mexicanx or whatever, it kind of doesn't really mean so much to me. I mean, I, I get it. And I think in a way, maybe putting that X is just, um, it, it's a signal that, you know, the, the language is fluid and these things can change. Now, Adriana, does it make you mad that most media now has moved toward that and that it's, it's typically something that's used by a lot of media? No, not really. I think what, what the thing that I am a little frustrated about with the media is just that sometimes they don't drill down or that they're not so careful in who they are projecting the label onto. So I think, um, and I get why they do it for expediency, right? Like you think, well, if I'm going to use this label that will capture more people so that I don't exclude somebody, but I also think we just have to be careful because, you know, there are indigenous communities that sometimes are labeled um, Latinx or Latino, and, and they have members who don't want to be called that. That's my guest, Adriana Maestas. She is a journalist covering Latino politics in California. Okay, Julia, where are you on Latinx now? <laughs> oh, please. I mean, the thing is, I, it's, I'm mixed, right? Because we've had this debate. One of the things that I would like to kind of remind people is that our community is still trying to figure itself out and will continue to figure itself out and will be challenged from all sides. And I'm actually kind of glad that this debate is happening because it elevates our community <laughs> people. So I'm, I'm all for people talking about it, but what I do think is kind of silly is sort of how older generations in our community just are completely no way are completely just being so dismissive about it. And it kind of goes back to the point about how the younger Latino community is pushing the envelope and challenging all these conventions. And it's what Adriana saying and people are saying, I, I reject the label, which I think is completely fine. So it's an end to me right now. It's an entry point. I'm past the whole. Why are we having this conversation again? When it starts getting used for political purposes, there are <laughs> to go back to the Trump campaign. There's plenty of people in right wing media that mock it, mm. that use it as as, you know, here are the progressives making, you know, trying to the PC culture and, you know, they're using this and they have no connection to the community. I, I think it's a big disservice when when people don't understand the origins of Latinx or let me toss another one. Latine, like people are starting to end it with an E, mm. you know, Latine is more neutral. So you're starting to see that. And I know people think that that's, oh, why are you doing it? Why is people why is everyone so obsessed about identity? It's because when you think about it, the Hispanic community was invented by the government That's of the United true. States, you know, in the 70s, like and in the 80s, Google the invention of Hispanics. There's books written about this. This identity has always been sort of imposed on us. So anyone that pushes back, I'm all for it. And, you know, and I founded a site called Latino Rebels for that same reason. So people are like, why do you use Latino? It's like, it's what we use. But we let any writer use what he, she, or they want to use. So, I mean, when we when we publish pieces about Latinx, people mock us. And I'm like, I don't care. 
at this point. It's just sad. It's just like, can you just be a little bit more inclusive and that there are other voices in this community who might not agree with you? Just respect it. Just move on. Yeah. Uh, Adriana, when we have this conversation again next year, <laughs> we'll see where you are, where we're at, because it's ongoing. It's got to be ongoing as different people weigh in. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Adriana Maestas, a journalist covering Latino politics. We're talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. Um Something that we've been talking about uh, quite a bit, you two with me and me and other situations, are the high numbers of Latinos who are uh, victims of COVID-19. And there have been a couple of pieces. I was really taken with the one from the Washington Post with a particular focus on pregnant Latinas and that the rate is very, very high. So let's let's already put on the table that we know the rate among uh communities of color, uh, Latinos in particular, it's quite high, period. But there's a real issue here among uh, pregnant women for all the reasons that many times we've stated before, circumstances people are living in, lack of access, on and on and on. Um, But I wanted you two to respond to it. Adriana, I'll start with you. I don't know. I've not heard anybody with specific programs addressing this, but it is an issue. Yeah, no, it is an issue. And I think it gets to sort of that um, younger adult, you know, um, essential worker in the family type of thing, where people are have to go out to earn a living, and they, you know, they could be taking all the precautions, and they still somehow get exposed and bring it back into their home. So I think that this just sort of, you know, that there are a lot of pregnant Latinas who are being impacted by COVID speaks to the economic circumstances of their families. I think that that's probably a big issue right there. And also, you know, the failure of our government to really come up with a situation for people who do have to work where they could possibly go quarantine in a safe space away from their family. So they're not bringing it home and giving it to their children and pregnant wives and girlfriends and and everybody else in the household. So I do think that that is something that, um, you know, just something to be aware of. And I, and I think that what we have seen in the lack of government action is some nonprofit organizations and local health clinics kind of stepping in to bridge that care gap that might exist for those people. Uh, Julio, aside from all of the things that Adriana has just put on the table about it, there's also a lack of testing in many of these communities. So you don't yeah. even know if, you know, if you had a chance to know, wait a minute, I, I, I'm I infected. Now let me try to at least figure something out around that. You, you don't even have an opportunity to know that. The article you refer in the Post and, you know, the CDC information where they were collecting, you know, self-reported Right. Since January 22nd, you know, 14,100 pregnant women, 6,400, like close to half were Latina, which I'm like, wow, you know, close to seven, you know, close to 6,500, which is a pretty high number. And you and, and you know that that's that number is probably higher, but it gets to the bigger issue that Adriana is saying. And also, I think in general, how this crisis and this pandemic has not truly reflected the real people who have suffered and have died from this pandemic. 
even when you think about the debate this week, the discussion about the pandemic was still very <laughs> dehumanizing, at least on Trump's side. I think I think Biden tried to put a little bit of a a sense of empathy, and in after you know after being interrupted so many times, I think he pushed through and gave empathy. But I think it's still missing out on what communities are being disproportionately impacted. And I blame political media. I blame journalists who don't have a connection with black and brown communities and indigenous communities in this in this country to really start changing the focus on who's truly suffering from this pandemic. So, you know, it's treated as sort of, oh, look at this tidbit. You know, Latina pregnant women are suffering higher than anybody else. I mean, to me, at this point, why is that not leading the discussion about coronavirus? It's just something that gets me really upset and sad. And even when you look at Massachusetts, how when all is said and done, when you're still looking at what parts of the Commonwealth are red, green or yellow, it's so obvious that it's immigrant communities. And we're not leading with that even locally. And I think it has to do with representation and un- and a lack of understanding of these communities in the first place. Hmm. Well, I can't end on that note. So I want to <laughs> end not. on uh, something that's uplifting. And that is uh, Mandalay Del Barco from NPR did this fabulous piece about all these artists and writer groups uh, working very hard and successfully to get more Latinx stories to young readers. Uh, these kinds of stories and images that have a cultural context are so important for young kids, as we've seen over and over, and many, many studies support it. So just wanted to uh, get your response to that. Adriana, had you heard about any of these, the Latinx Pitch for Kid Lit, for example, uh, Las Musas, another one? There's just a number of them working together. Had you heard about any of Yeah, I have. And I mean, the one that I've heard about most, and probably just because I know some of the people involved with it, is the Dignidad um, Literaria. So what they're trying to do is hold the big publishers accountable and try to bring more representation there. So I, I'm I'm fully supportive of it. I think it's very important that we do this. I think children um, do need to see themselves reflected in literature and in art. Um, I, I mean, I'm, gl- I'm glad it's happening, um, better late than never. So that's kind of where, <laughs> where I'm at with it. And I, I'm excited to see, I hope that, you know, I hope that if we have this conversation a year or two from now that, you know, there are some hopefully award-winning new authors that we can point to who've created some of these stories, um, just so that, you know, that, so that there's more variety and that we have more representation in children's literature. Exactly. Julio? Shouldn't be a struggle in 2020. It shouldn't be a fight anymore. I mean, publishing houses are, are, you know, this mea culpa is, I mean, this has been going on for decades. And I feel these, these groups and discussions are very good. They push the envelope. I know several of the names on this list and part of this group, like Adriana. And I think it's really important. And it's good that they're continuing to push the pressure but when is that pressure going to lead to actual transformation and Mm -hmm. i'm talking about where are the latino and latina editors who are heading up publishing houses 
who are in executive positions. It's still kind of convincing, you know, <laughs> white New York <laughs> literary circles that this matters. But I think this is important. It's also very important. I just feel it, it, it gets very frustrating. And, and I but I applaud all the people that are involved because it's a it's going to be a marathon. Yeah. All right. Well, some good news, even if tempered. I thank the both of you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> Julio Ricardo Varela is digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. And Adriana Maestas is a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Coming up, Natasha Trethewey's mother was murdered by her former stepfather, a tragedy that upended her world at the age of 19. For years, she had no words to express the depth of her loss and grief until she decided to write the story that had long haunted her. Memorial Drive, her memoir, is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and the kickoff conversation for this year's virtual Boston Book Festival. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. I held my breath through most of Natasha Trethewey's memoir, Memorial Drive, dreading getting to the part where she writes about how her mother was killed by her ex-husband and Trethewey's former stepfather. Trethewey's memoir takes us beyond that tragic seminal event, chronicling her many years searching for answers, acceptance, and peace. Memorial Drive is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Our discussion is also the kickoff conversation for the 2020 Boston Book Festival. Author and poet Natasha Trethewey is a former U.S. Poet Laureate. She's written five collections of poetry, including Native Guard, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She's also the author of the nonfiction book Beyond Katrina, a meditation on the Mississippi Gulf. She is the Board of Trustees Professor of English at Northwestern University. And Natasha Trethewey joins me now from Evanston, Illinois. Welcome, Natasha. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. Your book is wonderful. Um, there are many who have written glowing reviews, and I will underscore that. It's so touching and poignant. I want to start here. The book is entitled Memorial Drive, as we've said, but just below the title are the words, A Daughter's Memoir. And I was taken with that characters, characterization of the story of your life framed in the context of your relationship with your mother. Mm -hmm. Do you see your life in that context? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's an epigraph in the, the beginning of the book from Shakespeare's sonnet number three that reads, Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. I think it, it, it captures for me what I've come to, to realize that um, in trying to both examine my life and to reimagine for the purpose of this book hers, that it is indeed that, that mirror quality that makes it plain to me that I am who I am because 
of her because of the, the reflection of her in my own face, um, in my way of going about the world, um, in my voice. And so in trying to write this memoir, I wanted to focus on just that, that relationship between us as if the rest of the world weren't necessarily part of it but those wonderful early years of mother and daughter and the impact that that would have over the rest of my life. Hmm. Now, your mother, as we've said, was uh, shot by her ex-husband, your former stepfather, um, who had threatened to do it if she, she didn't come back to him. So first of all, it's hard for us to think about losing your mother, period, but losing your mother in the way that you did, mm -hmm. murdered by your ex-stepfather, is just horrific. But you were 19 years old when it happened and perhaps less equipped to deal with this kind of trauma in a way that you might if you were older. Uh, you've acknowledged through the book uh, how much you've tried to push those memories away, but you carried the trauma um, and it often man manifested themselves in dreams. Uh, one of the dreams that you describe is right at the beginning of the book, and I'd love you to read that excerpt. Oh, yes, of course, I'd love to. Three weeks after my mother is dead, I dream of her. We walk a rutted path, an oval track around which we are making our slow revolution. Side by side, so close our shoulders nearly touch, neither of us speaking, both of us in our traces. Though I know she is dead, I have a sense of contentment, as if she's only gone someplace else to which I've journeyed to meet her. The world around us is dim, a backdrop of shadows out of which now a man comes. Even in the dream, I know what he has done. And yet I smile, lifting my hand and speaking a greeting as he passes. It's then that my mother turns to me, then that I see it, a hole the size of a quarter in the center of her forehead. From it comes a light so bright so piercing that I suffer the kind of momentary blindness brought on by staring at the sun, her face nothing but light ringed in darkness when she speaks. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? I know I am not meant to answer, and so we walk on as before, rounding the path until we meet him again. This time, he's come to finish what he started. Holding a gun, he is aiming at her head. This time, I think I can save her. Is it enough to throw myself in the bullet's path? Shout, no. I wake to that single word, my own voice wrenching me from sleep. But it's my mother's voice that remains, her last question to me. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? A refrain. That's my guest, Natasha Trethaway, reading from her memoir, Memorial Drive. Um, Natasha, when I look back over some of your poetry, I think I see bits and pieces of this story, references mm -hmm. to memories. Were you mm -hmm. conscious over these years at, of these attempts to write this story but those th so that those bits and pieces were really um, your first attempts in some way? You know, as I said, I, I was avoiding so much of 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 those those years that we lived with Joel her ex-husband and i i was trying to find a way to to separate out um 
what I could keep, what I had held on to, while at the same time getting rid of the rest. And so I think that those little pieces were less about trying to tell this story that I now tell than they were trying to hold on to her, whom I had lost so much of in the process of forgetting. It took you quite a long time to get to the point where you ever wanted to pull it all together and write it. Listen, everybody could understand that. I'm, I'm not sure some people could ever have written it. Um, uh, so what was the triggering point for you that you said, all right, you know, now I'm going to write this story. I'm going to face all of these memories and I'm going to write the story. Well, it, it um, has a lot to do with my own recognition um, as, a, as a poet in the aftermath of um, winning the Pulitzer, um, also being appointed poet laureate, I was often written about in magazines, um, newspapers. And at that point, my backstory became part of the story that was told about me. And in that backstory, my mother was often presented as an afterthought or a footnote, presented as if she were merely a, a victim. It was easy for people to draw a straight through line from my father, who was a poet, to, to me being a poet, as if that is what made me um, need to write and become the writer that I am. And I needed to show that, indeed, that is not the case, um, though my father encouraged me, um, always telling me I would have something important to say. I'm a writer because I've tried to contend with this overwhelming grief. Um, I'm a writer because my mother gave me the tools to um, reintegrate the self which might have been fragmented by trauma all those years. Mm. And I wanted to write about her because I said, if people are going to tell the story and include her in it, then I need to be the one to actually tell the full story of who she, who she was. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with Natasha Trethaway, the author of her new memoir, Memorial Drive. So for a long time before you were sat down to, to decide to write the story for the reasons you've uh, just expressed, you were really, I mean, you went inside. You, you kept silence. And it, 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 it came across to me as that was your survival technique in this, in this book. Um, so you, you really couldn't share your mother's voice because you weren't even sharing your own voice for a long time around this story. And yet, there you're prolific in your poetry writing about uh, many other things. But I wonder if you talk about that silence and what you called a willed forgetting. Well, you know, um, the uh, attempt at forgetting um, is something that I confronted most powerfully on a personal level, when I wrote Native Guard, um, you know, which is a book that includes elegies for my mother. It is also a book that uh, tries to create a lyrical monument in language to her, as well as to um, the lesser known soldiers, black soldiers who were stations off, stationed off the coast of my hometown in Gulfport, Mississippi, which, for me, became a metaphor for a type of national amnesia, 
that we are seeing played out again and again uh, as we look at Confederate monuments and what they mean and what stories they tell and how people uh, use them to forget the larger truth of our American past. That's where I realized that I was guilty of a similar kind of willed amnesia in only recalling a part of my life with my mother. The other part was too um, painful to bear in some ways, to have part of my conscious memory. And yet it was always there, um, waiting to emerge, just as uh, we see this racial reckoning that has emerged because people can't take the pain that these monuments cause anymore. Well, in fact, Natasha, the irony, I don't even know how to explain it, uh, of, of uh, your growing up uh, in Mississippi and then living in Georgia and, and having your life framed by the, a certain kind of racial dynamics that is a little bit unique to uh, the Deep South. I'm a black woman who grew up in, in uh, Tennessee, so I related to your talking about being born on Confederate Day, a day many people might not know outside of the Deep South, and that everywhere you were, there were the Confederate flags, and everywhere you looked, there were the monuments. And then mm -hmm. when you moved to Georgia, being born in the shadow of Stone Mountain, which was built as a monument to the Confederacy. So talk about why it's important that people understand this piece of your life to sort of frame all of your memoir. Oh, sure. You know, um, living in the shadow of monuments to the lost cause and to white supremacy, monuments that were uh, erected to remind Black people of their place as second-class citizens in the United States, people who wanted to destroy the Union uh, and to preserve slavery um, were everywhere looming around me growing up. And it creates for me, and I think a lot of African-Americans, a sense of psychological exile. You were in your own homeland, a homeland that your ancestors built, and you were being told again and again that it's not really yours. And monuments are always contests over memory and over who owns history. It took me a long time, you know, as a native of Mississippi to see that this issue of psychological exile wasn't simply rooted in my native state, but also in the place to which I moved with my mother. We lived before she died at the base of Stone Mountain, which holds the nation's largest monument to the Confederacy and the lost cause and white supremacy. And it's so large that just the metaphor of it, the, the, the image of it, if you could imagine her dying there at the foot of that mountain, at the base of that mountain, and that Confederate monument looming over her, it tells you everything about what we remember and hold as important and what we forget, what is rendered small and insignificant. Mm. And I wanted to reverse that, that my mother's life is not the small, insignificant life, and her life as representative of Black women and Black people is not small. What is small is the act of 
trying to continue to oppress a group of people with symbols that we inscribe all over our landscape in this country. Hmm. So much of this book is rooted in your Southern upbringing and, um, and has to do with your mixed-race parentage as well. Your mother, Gwendolyn Ann Turnbow, was Black. Your father, Eric Trethaway, was white. Um, and that has a certain kind of resonance in, um, uh, uh, in the setting you've, you've just described. I wonder if you'd read a piece from your book, um, just to give people a sense of what we're talking about, um, page 34. Sure. I could see it on the faces of the white people we encountered, how even the nicer ones just shook their heads, whispering, such a cute little thing, too bad she's black. How others stared at us, sucking their teeth, Sometimes this hostility turned to outright intimidation. Someone following us out of Woolworths to the car, my mother gripping my father's arm to prevent him turning around and engaging the man behind us. Someone else driving slowly by the house, glaring at us as we sat on the front porch. A group of three or four men accosting my father on his way home from work on the docks, asking, what's wrong with you? Why you live in among the niggas? It's tough stuff. That's my guest, Natasha Trethaway. She's the author of a new memoir called Memorial Drive. Your story is also on a bigger scale, a domestic violence story as well. So you include in the book, which I thought was just gut-wrenching, the transcripts of phone calls that your mother was recording in order to offer evidence to the detectives that, you know, she indeed fear for her life and, and fear that her children might be killed as well. And these are something, Natasha, but it also, I think, opened a window to let people understand that this is this goes on a lot. Tell us about just reading those transcripts for the first time and then also how you came to have them, which was really quite amazing story as well. Sure. You know, it was um, one of the hardest things I had to do to read them because it is all there. How plain the situation was, how clear, how hard she tried to be calm and rational, how resilient she was, how determined not to return to uh, her former life with him in spite of what it was going to mean, the, the real chance that she was going to die because she would not go back to him. And so as hard as it was to read her doing that, it was also wonderful to see that she was everything I remembered her to be and that there was the evidence of it that I didn't have to try to tell you how amazing she was I could just show you you'd see it for yourself in those transcripts and um, the way I came to have them was uh, serendipitous my husband and I had moved uh, very close to the courthouse where the trial, his first trial and then his sentencing for this crime were held. And one day we were walking from home to a restaurant we would go to frequently. And um, when we got to the restaurant, uh, a man came up to us and said, did I just see you two walking from the hotel? And because uh, we weren't coming from the hotel, I said no, not thinking that 
we had to walk past the hotel from our house to, to get to the restaurant. So when I said no, he said, oh, well, I, I'm sorry to bother you. And he went and sat down. And a few minutes later, the bartender sent, uh, came over um, with a round of drinks and he said that, you know, Bob had sent them over and apologized again for bothering us. And I thought that was strange. My husband thought it was strange. So I decided to go over and introduce myself to the man and the woman that he was sitting with. When I did, I stood there sort of looking out at the courthouse and uh, he asked me what I did for a living. And uh, I told him and I asked him. And when he said that he was an assistant district attorney in another county, I, I just said, oh, I, I know, I happen to know the former district attorney here. And he asked me how. And I said, oh, there was just this case. And that's when he asked me if Gwen Grimet was my mother and if Joey was my brother. And I, I couldn't believe that he knew um, who they were. And as he said that, uh, his eyes welled up with tears and I looked at his wife and she said, there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about your mother. It turns out he had been the first police officer on the scene the morning that she was murdered. It seems as if it was destined to happen. And he told me that, um, you know, after 20 years, they purged the records in the courthouse. And so it had been 20 years and they were about to purge these. So he retrieved them for me so that I would have them. Now, some would say that this was quite spiritual. And I, I'm just going to note that uh, you've said it took you seven years to write this book. And seven years in the Bible is a number of completion. Mm. I wonder if you've ever thought about that in those terms. I think about things like this all the time. And um, the the year that I was finishing the book was 33 years since she died. Mm. 33 years since I was 19, which meant uh, if I think of, you know, the 33rd year, that year that's called the Jesus year, mm. it was as if I had lived another um, lifetime and had another Jesus year. I thought about that so much when I was turning 33 because you know, I have a poem about it. My father telling me it's your Jesus year. And mm. since my name is Natasha um, and, you know, means um, Christmas child, I couldn't help thinking, um, you know, I suppose foolishly that, um, that I was going to die in my 33rd year, as opposed to thinking about the figurative aspect, which was, resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so there was a kind of resurrection for me then. And I suppose another one in these 33 years since she's been gone, a whole lifetime. What do you want people to take away from your beautifully written book and, and your, and your story that's so heartfelt? Well, I want them, I want people to know a little bit more about who my mother was the remarkable, resilient woman that she was, the woman who made me. I think it's also important to think about people who are victims of domestic violence right now. Uh, my mother's story is important because she is uh, what is considered in the work of um, ending domestic violence, 
a perfect victim because she did everything right. She um, sought the right kind of counseling when the marriage was not working. And then she tried to get out when it was clear that it could not be salvaged. And so my mother in, in leaving does the, did the thing that people always say about victims of domestic violence. Why didn't they just leave? Well, she did. And she sought the right help with the courts, with a domestic violence shelter. She was educated. She had resources. She was not um, dependent on her abuser for anything. And so when we say to women who, who were not situated in the way that my mother was, you can get away. How can you say to someone, if my mother can't get away, that they can? It makes it very hard for a woman to extricate herself from a difficult situation. I think my mother's story is emblematic of that and means we should pay a lot more attention. Well, Natasha Trethaway, thank you so much for sharing your poignant story with us. It's beautifully written, as, of course, we would expect from a former U.S. poet laureate um, and a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. It really resonates. And I know how hard this must be to tell this story over and over again. And I appreciate your sharing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Natasha Trethway is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and a former U.S. Poet Laureate. Her memoir, Memorial Drive, is her latest book. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, available in bookstores and online now. This kickoff conversation for the Boston Book Festival can also be found on the BBF website. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH produced by Hannah Ubali and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>